basically what I do, I help founders to be more structured and uh, work uh, more efficient and understand all the processes. So that's quickly about uh, the work I do. But simultaneously, I'm trying to uh, catch a wave with a uh, servant. Uh, last time was in Bristol and it was awesome. So I recommend it, everyone. Lovely. Let's go back then and kind of think about where you started from because a lot of people want to start businesses. You're obviously in a more kind of service-centric business. Um, it's not really the case that you can just, you know, graduate school while they wake up and be like, yeah, I want to go start in there. Obviously, you have to give the years of experience beforehand. Can you talk about those years of experience you built up before starting your own company? Yeah. Uh, all six years before when I was in a startup world, I thought that I would never ever open any company i would be uh, totally uh, fully employed all the time but uh, just uh, half a year ago i started thinking about uh, consumer psychology and data analytics uh, from this perspective looking at the operations so um i understood that probably if you uh, are more narrow uh, down specialist and you know what can be improved in some Small cases for startups, you can be even more, uh, the start founders can benefit more from your ideas rather than you are so gen generalist. So before I was working as uh, chief operating officer in the Ukrainian-American startup Fuel Finance, and simultaneously I was a fractional CEO working with different business models. I was working with real business, beauty salons, dental clinics, I was working with agencies, compliance, etc. And I believe that uh, all that experience of different business models made me thinking that probably one day I can be an expert in, uh, in operations, knowing how various business types work. Well, so there's a range of different places as well, um, all different types of backgrounds, all industries. What was your favorite to work in and why? So it's an interesting question. Um, my first uh, job was related to sales operations. Uh, I was working for Upgrades, Ukrainian-based company, and I was setting up sales uh, metrics, sales analytics in Zoho from scratch. So for me, that's the most remarkable experience because I remember I was just I was still in a university, and they were teaching me all the economic stuff, how it should work in the uh, in the real world, but then I came to this upgrade and uh, my commercial director, she asked me like, uh, do you know what does it mean deals, contacts and uh, how to make dashboards? And I was like, oh, so real world. <laughs> so that was kind of an experience, which, which was my favorite one, I believe in comparison with others. I love that because I think you make a really good point. It's like, I, I experienced this myself, especially when you go to work in a more corporate environment, you are shielded from a lot of the reality. If you're kind of like a junior employee, um, if you're working in finance, for example, and your job is just like pushing paper or doing Excel or whatever, you're shielded from what the revenue generating activities are, which is obviously going out, meeting clients, um, mm -hmm. kind of deals. I think what you're saying there is that you were still at uni in college. And you were thrust straight onto the front lines and you had to do the work for yourself. You had to figure out how to stand on your feet very quickly. I think that's a really formative experience. Um, it's something essential that, especially if you want to become an entrepreneur, I get up the learning curve as quickly as possible. Mm -hmm. You need to go ahead first. Like you need to be on the front lines as quickly as possible. Yeah. Can you can you take away that kind of like the 
the, the one key learning you had from working in fuel, from working in your past in sales that you've taken forward into your new business? The, the more and the faster you try, uh, the better and uh, the better result you're going to have. So previously in my uni, I was uh, nailing all the processes. I mean, my homework, uh, all the uh, articles. But when I went to a real work and uh, I had to do a lot of things, I understood that, okay, uh, the faster I do these mistakes, uh, the better I understand how it works. So that's the main key takeaway, uh, faster and more. And that will uh, bring you to the uh, to the result. At least that's my formula. Don't be afraid to make mistakes, right? Fail fast, all of that good stuff. Yeah. So true. Like when you're in school, everything is in boxes, and you're you're trained like a monkey almost. Like get this A, you know, yes. pass this grade, and this and that. Don't make mistakes. You get punished for mistakes. That's a lot of people's childhood, right? You get to yeah. get rewards not like that, and it takes a huge mentality shift um, to actually overcome that. It's a really interesting one. So let's talk about then, kind of like. The early days of your startup, which is obviously still very early. You started it like, if I'm not mistaken, a few weeks ago or a few months ago. Um, how did you go about getting your first customer there? Um, the first customer, it uh, wasn't a big magic. It was a referral. But uh, I would rather speak about the first customer who was outbound. <laughs> and that was a huge deal. So um, at first, I was really scared that I'm gonna sleep under the uh, no under the bridge and that I would have nothing, nothing to eat. And um, back in those days, I thought, okay, uh, if I have referrals and I have already one client, probably others may need this as well. So I have to understand what am I selling because my friends just recommended me as a. Uh, operations generalist, she will do everything for you. <laughs> but the uh, hardest thing for me was to understand what I sell and usually who wants to buy it. So I had approximately 100 calls with founders during three weeks to understand what they want to buy and to formulate it in the right sentences. Because at the very beginning, I remember I was spending hour on a call explaining founders what am i doing what what is notion why i mentioned those tools and only afterwards when i started asking uh, those people about their pain points i had my personal notion when where i wrote down all these pain points and only after this i understood that okay probably i am selling them time economy that uh, i'm helping them to save time for their product because the issue usually my uh, founders and my clients face is that they don't have any time for operations because they want to be involved in product. However, once they started being involved in a product, they cannot scale because they have no operations. And that's a funny point because I have already changed my positioning in Notion because Notion, my website is based on Notion. So I changed it for... Uh, well, it's 25, at twist 25 times because every time I was changing, okay, I do this or I do this. <laughs> so it's kind of a funny way how I was changing what I, what I really sell. But to be honest, it's still a process and I still change uh, from time to time my wording and uh, even visuals, which I show to my founders. That's awesome. Yeah. Let's talk about those changes then. Well, obviously it's kind of 
still in the state of flux and evolution. But right now, kind of what is your 30-second pitch of Jane? What are your <laughs> best offerings? Oh, James, I wasn't prepared. I have my business only for one month. <laughs> my pitch is still 15 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so what do you what do you let me rephrase that? What are you finding that customers want the most from you? When you come in and you say, I'm Jane, I'm a great at ops, I can do all of these things, I like to use Notion, I can help speed up your processes 10x. What do they say? Okay, we really want you to help with X. Mm -hmm. So uh, if we speak about this 30-second pitch, I would say that I do uh, turnkey operations uh, because usually I set up everything from scratch up to high-level processes, meaning that I have founders with my operations check up at first to understand what they have, what's the picture, where they have gaps, either in recruitment or marketing or sales, or as we were speaking, they have already all tools sent, but they don't have any automations. So that's the first thing I provide them with the operations checkup and understanding where are those gaps. Then if they are ready, we move forward and I help them describe those main business processes saying that, okay, right now there, that's the S is. So usually I describe them with RASI approach, seeing that Probably at one stage of your process, you have 10 people. But why should you, if you have 10 people in your company, all of them to be involved in one stage of process? Probably it's not necessary. So the next thing, I help them analyze this process, main business process, and understand what the process should be. So And then the long process uh, takes place. Why? Because we are engaged in implementing that process. So I train operations manager or junior chief operating officers uh, in a company's client, the companies, uh, because they have sometimes junior positions and they need to be trained. So I help founders to train their ops managers, project managers to implement that process. And after it's implemented, we can think about automations. So I say them, okay, you use four tools, probably we can sync them or we can add additional information about your users if you want it for to have for your customer a success management for instance so uh to cut the long story short i usually help them better understand all the processes they have describe them and afterwards either optimize or automize and train their internal staff how to work with them so once i leave they still have this knowledge inside their company did you ever think about going into private equity uh, no. you, sound, you sound like you'd be you sound like you'd be excellent, right? Yeah, consultancy. There's a lot. There's a lot of um, parallel parts. I think it's very important to add to anyone listening. Uh, you've shown a great pastor that if you do work in something like you you work in management consultancy and you're used to looking at the operations of business behind uh, behind the curtain, so to speak. There's an easy way to spin up your own agency if you have kind of the moxie and the hustle, which you do because you went out and did a hundred calls. In a couple of weeks, which is absolutely crazy. Um, talk about that then in terms of determination, um, because that must have been like a turning point for you where you said, okay, this is enough. I don't want to work for someone else. I want to go out and do this um, on my own. But, you know, I know a lot of people, you know, some of them quite introverted who would say, you know, the, the thought of going out and doing 100 calls, you know, completely terrifies me. Talk about how you got over that and why you thought that was the right time to actually put yourself out there. 
Uh, good, good question, James. Uh, kind of a psychology talk. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so now, if we speak about the first point, I believe that was half a year ago when I uh, started thinking of switching to consumer psychology. Um, that was a point where I understood that, okay, operations purely in a long term won't be that interested for me, even with IE or data analytics. So, sorry, that was my favorite cat. <laughs> so, uh, half a year ago, I thought, okay, if I, I'm a switcher, what should I do? And I started applying to, uh, I had 140 companies probably uh, all around the world who were searching or even not searching for a junior uh, data analyst or junior quantity quality researcher. And you would never guess, I didn't receive any answer. First of all, because I didn't have a, nor a statistical nor uh, mathematical background. And the second thing that usually those companies are so small because they work as a consulting. So they have just three people on board and then don't, they don't hire anyone. And I thought, okay, if the world doesn't want me to be hired in consumer psychology, I should do something else. And I decided that probably I should integrate it into my business. <laughs> so operations is uh, an entry point for me right now, sooner to understand where this consumer psychology can be ingrained into operations, both into HR, recruitment, uh, into product analytics and uh, marketing as well. But that, that was a logical thing which I understood for myself half a year ago. But if we speak about psychology, I believe that uh, all like last three years, I believe I had this inner feeling that I want uh, to have freedom. I want to go to museum or gallery at 12 a.m., for instance, and, uh, and don't care if I have to do something now or not. Um, it sounds like, and now maybe childish a little bit, but I really wanted to have this freedom. So I believe that my mentality was preparing me to this point, to this September, when I decided to say, like, okay, stop, let's do this, and to have this 100, 100 calls. And uh, it wasn't just of the scene of pure internal motivation. It was also from my desire to have money because as I some time ago mentioned to you that I really wanted to uh, to live to still live in, in London to live in my apartment and as I didn't have any money I had to think about materialistic things so one of my driver, drivers was to earn at least some money and to be honest in this case Either I am introvert or extrovert, uh, they didn't work for me. <laughs> I had uh, a desire which was stronger than this. Love it. It's a fantastic story. And then um, I'm really interested in the psychological part as well, because mostly I don't think it's childish. I think everyone goes, everyone wants that freedom that they got back. Um, and if anything, childish is a, is a compliment because we almost all want to like capture that energy that we had in our childhood, that kind of curiosity of like looking at everything like, wow, this is so interesting. And as we get older and older into our 20s, even into our 30s, that kind of love for life just starts to decline a bit and we get used to the monotony. And I think as early as possible to break free from that is absolutely essential. But talk to me about these like 100 calls because 
I do this thing as well. Like most of my calls, obviously, you know, podcasts or trying to talk to someone who may have like a business outlet for me or that I'm trying to develop a business relationship with. And sometimes I like to jump on calls and just talk to people about life, uh, meet someone interesting that I otherwise wouldn't talk to. I'm sure from your hundred calls with your families, you came across some like characters or people that maybe challenge your personal biases or perceptions of the world. Can you talk about what those calls were like and what you learned from them? Maybe yeah. focusing on the stuff that was kind of out of the ordinary and unexpected. Mm-hmm. Interesting. The first scene, uh, which was uh, really cool for me when I just started, uh, was that people easily agreed to go on the calls, even if they didn't know me at all. Because before the whole year, when I was here in London, I didn't try to socialize. Because back to Ukraine, before the war, I was such a social person that I spent every evening going offline to a meeting that maybe I was tired a little bit of that. So I decided to have this uh, kind of a gap in socializing for a year or for for a year and a half. And yeah, when I started again to socialize, it was it was like, I don't know, probably like a new skill. I had to understand again how to talk to people um, again. It's another culture. And the main scene, which I probably understood, I had calls not only with uh, with British people, I had to them with uh, uh, with US, with European people. So uh, difference in culture, that was uh, one interesting thing. But another scene was also connected with uh, insights. Um, people, I was speaking also with academics, for instance, in consumer psychology. And back, back it was like in, uh, in April, I believe so. Uh, so... At that point, I was speaking with them, and I understood that sometimes uh, we live like in different universes. So people in the uh, academic world, for instance, they are so, so smart, but just in their this direction of research. So I was fascinated how smart they are. Simultaneously, they are not interested in moving further with this research. So they did a wide pool research in, and it can be implemented in business. However, they don't care about business. They just do this for their internal purposes, like to do research, to discover something, and then they just leave this research. So that's just an example what I uncovered from myself, that sometimes our internal motivation and our motives can be so different and that it is so important to take this into account when you sell something, when you communicate with people that uh, probably, for instance, um, I know for for me, when I speak with a founder, it can be uh, a motive of understanding his business for him to show off a little bit because he just got fundraising. And when you uh, understand that you are going on a call, it's such an important thing to be prepared to speak around the motive of a person rather than your own or to combine them and not only imply your personal motives. So that uh, was one of the main insights, I believe. And others was were related to, to my product and related to challenges in, in business. Are you interested to hear them as well? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so if we speak about... Uh, business side, um, it was interesting that most of the founders, um, 
they wanted to help me that much uh, because I was offering for some of them pro bono or just uh, operations checkup. They wanted me to help that much that they, at first, even agreed to have this call with me. Afterwards, they proceed further. And at the third touch, sometimes I understood that they have even that they even have good operations inside and they just trying to make things that sophisticated. So I was shocked that part of the world already has some operations, good, good operations inside. And the thing is that they want to make it even more automated. They have Zapier, they have uh, Notion, they have all the tools set, but they tell me, okay, Jane, look at this picture, what you can do with this? And that was one of the biggest findings that uh, my challenge is not only to set up everything from scratch, because I know how to do it. That's easy when people don't have anything to do a sophisticated operations for them. But when people already have the sophisticated operations, how can I add value there? And that is still a challenge. So founders which have a request on something sophisticated, on combining it with AI, on uh, trying this uh, uh, ATU, which I mentioned you, like new CRMs, or they search for products daily on a product hunt and they ask me, okay, did you hear about this product? Then I do a research and I understand that they launched a week ago. So that's the level of, level of founders, which I understood I want to target. And that's the people whom is really interesting to deal with and to help. They're interesting, but hard, right? I mean, you're, you're having to learn about products that are week old. And I imagine, I know me, but that scenario, I'll be like scrambling around trying to learn everything as quickly as possible. Does that not get really stressful for you? Is it not sim Is it just not more simple for you if you say, here's my template, I'm only going to pick companies that have really shit backend ops that really need improvement from the ground up and focus on them uh, <laughs> because it feels like you're creating yourself a big headache or am I completely wrong there? Please correct. Um, good thing here. And I was wondering about this even yesterday. I was thinking, why would I try in new outbound messages for a real business if I already know that all IT companies outstaff and outsource need my services and I already know how to work with them. Why would I do this? <laughs> but uh, mm, the answer is, mm, for me, business is about uh, a challenge or a headache in another word, uh, because I don't want to have it stable just to have money. I want to be scared all the time a little bit that I cannot deal with something or that I won't handle that. So that's my kind of internal driver or craziness. I don't know how to call it. <laughs> that uh, I well, entrepreneurial spirit actually cool. <laughs> Yeah, in another way, yeah. That I was working uh, last three, last, sorry, last two years with the online business only. But I decided why not to work with restaurants and help them set up a franchise. That's really cool. I don't know anything about internal arrest operations in restaurants. Why not to do a pro bono understanding? Because, because any, any sane person would be like, the restaurant industry is in my field and it's horrible. And the margins are so small and it's really painful and it's very stressful. But James was like, no, I'm going to go ahead first for it. Give me the biggest challenge possible. 
Uh, James, you know, um, you, I can say the same about you <laughs> with your challenges and your uh, ambitious of uh, new things you will be doing. So, yeah, but I believe that uh, every, to be honest, every, okay, not every, all ambitious people, uh, that's not about good characteristic or bad. I'm just saying like the same as uh, introverts or extroverts, all ambitious people um are dumb enough <laughs> to continue to continue finding all these challenges and it's not just about me uh we are all to certain things um to a certain stage try to find something we are unaware with not to be stuck because otherwise i'm 30 when i'm 30 i will be just dying from the dull things I'm doing, so I don't want to be there at <laughs> certain. Uh, neither. You're kind of like running away from that, right? I always yeah. think of it as like, you're going to regret not fulfilling your potential and so put yourself through the hard work now. Um, yes. And you will be rewarded. I said this to my friend yesterday, literally yesterday. Actually. It's like, don't stress too much about, you know, what you're exactly going to be doing in three years, five years, ten years. Just know that you're in the right area doing something you like and put your ass and do the most work you can possibly work hard as possible and you will get somewhere. Like these two equations, very, very simple. They will add up to something great as long as you put the time and the work in. Um, and that kind of helps you absorb a lot of the stress of like, am I doing the right thing? Uh, should I be doing here? Or look at this new shiny object, you know? Should I go over here as well? Um, I wanted to talk as well because... You're, you're talking a lot about kind of, you know, taking all these new challenges, going to work in new industries that you don't know. And a lot of people listening might be thinking, okay, AI is here. It's not even around the corner anymore. AI is right here. Um, and I know for a, a kind of the trajectory of a lot of service-based startups, which is what yours is at the moment, eventually it becomes quite productized. And eventually it goes towards the realm of like a software product, for example. Um, is that something that's sort of on the horizon? How are you thinking about incorporating these software elements? particularly AI, which, of course, as we already know, is being used to accelerate all of these backhead processes. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, interesting, because just yesterday I was reading a lot of uh, tweets uh, about content creation with AI. Uh, I know it's not about software, uh, AI in software or automations, but still interesting that, for instance, all the people who are, I don't know how to say it, who on writing text, for instance, uh, they write different researches and publish them, how, which tools have they used and which tools uh, did them help to continue writing daily, for instance. And the, uh, I don't know, is it a worse thing or happy thing about this that they still, uh, I haven't found from all those tweets anything which they would highly recommend. Uh, meaning that it's still, it's here, yeah, it's not even on the verge, we are not on the verge of uh, facing with AI, but it's still not on the right right level. But if that's if we speak about uh, texts, because why I started with this topic, because uh, I wanted to use it for, for myself, for my uh, LinkedIn and uh, cases, uh, and... Uh, if we speak about summarization or changing some of their words to better words, 
I would say that I was disappointed because I can feel from the text that it's still generated. I don't know how, but this human uh, note is uh, totally taken away from this text. So that's if we just speak about shortly about text. But if we speak about uh, tools, um, when I was thinking about switching from a service into a tool and uh, into a product, I started thinking about um, IE for sure, because I thought, what if we take all the information a client has and uh, all the meetings uh, they recorded, all the processes, and just analyze that with IE and ask IE to write those processes as they are and based on the experience as they should look like. So, um, and that's, I was shocked because it's not anymore a dream because I know some of the tools which help uh, analyze existing processes if you insert the ready text. Of course, it's not uh, a creating a text, but it's already analyzing the description of a process and offering some changes and then even building connections either between, I know, Zoho, Pipedrive, for instance, with Notion, with your Calendly, with your Gmail. So these tools already do this so um that it would be stupid uh, to be in operations for instance and to ignore these things but uh the another aspect is so many founders are still not on the verge of even having at least certain level of operations that they don't have this demand uh on uh high-quality operations. And therefore, I mentioned to you a case 10 minutes ago that I was shocked with one of the founders who wanted me to make the processes sophisticated. So uh, to conclude this story, I want to say that once we have some of the requests from founders that they have already well-set operations and they want to be them on the new level, I believe that more operations uh, consultants will dive deeper into IE and understand how it works. But everything depends on a demand. And uh, I'm, I'm not sure that at this stage, for instance, I'm ready to refuse from advising and consulting and dive into product IE driven directly. Do you think the industry still needs that face-to-face content? Because I think you touched on something really interesting. This is something that I kind of echo, which is... A lot of people are using like ChatGPT and stuff like that to write the emails and stuff like that. But I think it gets to the point where, you know, I it's completely using losing the human aspect to it. And if I'm producing a product, be it, you know, even if it's a social media post, a blog piece, a message sent to someone, part of my, you know, personality and humanity is in that message. It's quite personal. And as soon as you start getting AI to do all of these creative aspects mm-hmm. for you, you start to lose that humanity. So I still think there's a place for a human. Where AI can step in, which is what you said, is definitely with the optimization, with kind of augmentation. So doing things that humans otherwise couldn't do. I personally have a problem when it starts to jot in and try to do things that humans can do. Because it's like, that's when people's minds start running and going, AI is going to take over. Uh, I don't know if you subscribe to that thought philosophy, but uh, a lot of people kind of want this AI humanism. But I think what you talk about there is that there's no, there's no avoiding, right? In terms of AI, you know, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a very simple, sort of environment right now um 
But going back to my original question, do you still feel like there needs to be a human face in there, as in yourself? I would say that people buy how to say it correctly. People buy me rather than they buy what I set up to them. Meaning that they buy my energy, they buy my eye contact, they buy my ability to hear them, to ask them what they want to be asked and uh, to give them what they want. Sometimes a little bit critic, sometimes a little bit uh, uh, of jokes. Um, what I'm trying to say here is that at this stage, uh, there is no uh, AI tools which can add this empathy or this energy other people uh, want and other people uh, buy. And that's why I mentioned that especially in um, in consulting and in things where you kind of buy advice, you are not just buying advice. You are buying a person's person's you know, spirit and real person's energy. Therefore, particularly in my case, I believe that I'm not sure that even in one or two years it, it will be possible to interchange myself with a robot. But... Uh, still, I have read already one article that uh, they started, uh, I mean, researchers started uh, teaching empathy, uh, of robot of empathy. Therefore, it's not the end. So one day, maybe even consulting will have this interchange with a robot. But at this stage, uh, I am not sure. I mean, would you subscribe into this whole like robot friends, robot boyfriend, robot girlfriend? Or do you find that completely creepy and out of the picture? <laughs> For me, it's a little bit creepy. I don't know why. I wouldn't even say that I'm old school, but I'm so people person, how to say, that I, I appreciate this vibe that much. And I kind of uh, fulfill myself with this, with this vibe, simultaneously sharing it. That I'm not sure probably to test it out yet. <laughs> and then the question is like, oh, you can go really deep with it, right? Because people ask like, what is consciousness? And what actually defines a person? Because, you know, you can speak to a person over the phone and it's just their voice ultimately. You don't necessarily need to be a person with them. They don't need a body or anything. But if AI gets good enough for being able to imitate a person's emotions and a person's like speaking patterns of the way they respond to people's questions, which is, you know, not that far off, I would say, a couple of years until it becomes rage. At the moment, we still have like quite robotic, as you said, it's quite easy to tell when it's a robot or a human. The question is, is there like a, is there like a point where it becomes it a 90%, 95% like a human, where we're like, yeah, it's close enough, and people just kind of learn to live with it. Personally, I agree with you. I'm a, I'm a people person. I love to speak with people in person as well. Even talking over Zoom is not ideal. I would much prefer to be in person with you. Um, but it just feels like the more you read, the more you get opinions from people, it seems to be headed that way. That more and more people are actually comfortable uh, with just talking to an AI, provided that it becomes close enough approximation to a human. Mm -hmm. uh, interesting because um, I was on the lecture of one of the 
consumer psychology consultant here in London. It was like in September and they, um, I'm not sure if they were conducting this research or they just were presenting it, but anyway, so the research was about uh, uh, discovering feelings people have when they hear uh, from bank a person calling them or IE or like, sorry, a robot calling them. And that the level of trust to robots was so low that people even wrote emails to a bank asking them like because you know sometimes you need to like verify yourself and they ask you different uh, personal questions so those robots were doing this and people as well and people who were writing to bank like today i received a call from you but it was like a robot calling me so i didn't tell anything <laughs> was I, am i right that i did so <laughs> so um speaking about this uh this word of 90-95% that's interesting because uh, probably the generation right now, which uh, which is born right now on the stage where they already know from the very beginning that there is an IE, there are robots. I believe their level of trust will be higher for sure, in, even in comparison with ours. So it's just a, a matter of, uh, of a decade, I believe. And is it going to go towards like a Wally environment? where everyone's just like sitting in their little cars and not interacting with the world and just looking through a screen and using all VR headsets. Do you see it going that way in our lifetime? Or? Mm, yeah, unfortunately, yeah, because even, you know, even with, with friends, uh, if you have a party where no one uses a phone, you perceive it as the highest gift and the highest involvement. But usually when during your one-on-ones, people receive like notifications. Even I have, I didn't have any notifications until the September. But uh, when I started using X, I decided to subscribe on notifications. So now I know <laughs> of what and when 100 of my fo- uh, followers post. So um, yeah, unfortunately, it's going, it's going that way, that direction. But... This, I believe, that this desire of having a personal contact and having this closeness will, will not uh, be excluded because it's still a human nature. And did you hear about this woman who earns uh, like 200 uh, boxes in the US because she sells her one-hour hugs with people? Uh, so all the all her clients pay her $200 to hug her for one hour because um, the main reason they don't feel uh, that they are even connected with their friends. So uh, they are so separated from the world. Um, they are stating that because of Instagram, Twitter, etc., that they need this closeness and which they can only receive from an even a, like from a stranger. So this internal feeling still exists and it won't, uh, it won't disappear. That's just a matter of time when we, when we understand that we are bad not having it. <laughs> I see that you are, <laughs> you are surprised with this woman. <laughs> uh, 
I don't know, it's not even surprised because I know, I know humanity now. I know we're like more just kind of like despairing. It feels so dystopian, right? It feels like a late stage, you know, capitalism, particularly when you're living in the West, um, when our lives have become so easy to a point that we have everything at our fingertips that, you know, lots of people stop craving other, you know, simulation, other experiences. They stop going out into the world, experience things. They choose to live life in their bubble. Like just looking at the screen, what would they basically just did? Um, mm -hmm. It's quite a sad future, uh, but I'm an optimistic person, so I don't want to talk too much about uh, doomerism. I think AI is just so powerful. Area I'm interested in as well as like preventative stuff. So I think two good examples would be kind of like satellite imagery. So for climate change purposes, you know, predicting weather patterns, um, mm -hmm. predicting more accurately, you know, when hurricanes are going to occur predicting which areas of the globe are emitting the most greenhouse gases and where to focus and stuff like that. That's the big area that's coming up. Um, and the second would be on a much more personal scale. So like healthcare. So everyone's like, oh, the American healthcare system in particular is broken. But it's things like the power of AI that allows us to do human augmentation and optimization. In other words, see things that humans otherwise wouldn't see. So we have all of this genetic data, all of this disease data, millions of trillions of data points there's no way a single human can delve through that. But deep neural nets and advanced AI, they can. And they can spot onset of disease and onset of, you know, all of these different types of illnesses much earlier than we can. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm hoping that will be a boon for humanity as well. That's another really interesting uh, aspect. Yeah. Because I don't, I see a lot of podcasts that, obviously a lot of these kind of like pop psychology podcasts, they talk about, it, they talk about how AI is shit and it's going to destroy the world. You don't, Let's talk about the positive things, right? It's actually going to be yeah. a big benefit to society. Uh, what I'd like to know your opinion as well. I know we're going really off topic here with regards to your own business. I will definitely come back to it before the end. Um, but do you see like uh, the divide between the haves and the haves not getting bigger in terms of AI? What I mean by that is obviously the leaders in AI are, you know, the West, primarily the United States, uh, in China as well. Um, but, you know, the traditional global South, these so-called poorer countries in the world, they are not going to get access to AI anytime soon. So the question is, can AI be a positive for the world at, at kind of scale? Or is it going to be another one of those technologies that's very much concentrated in the first world? And we, as people living in the first world, have a kind of duty and a responsibility to disperse it across the world to the best of our abilities. Hmm, wow, this is an interesting question. I believe that uh, organically, uh, I won't be a spread to third world countries uh, because even internet, as we can remember, uh, appeared Vodafone, as far as I remember, according to like case, it appeared in uh, in Africa only like three or four five five years after the appearance in uh, in Europe and uh, in, in the West. So what I'm trying to say is that it is still controlled. And until uh, those monopolies of uh, having IE uh, have a desire to spread it or have a... Um, have a have a goal of why they want to spread it. I believe that it won't be spread, unfortunately, by by government. However, um, you you mentioned a really cool point that we 
as those who constantly use it and have have a chance to use it um have this responsibility of sharing it and uh, i would say that if before we had all those missions of spreading pure internet pure water and food that probably it would become so urgent to share ie because the level of life in us in europe would be so high in comparison with those countries for instance africa that otherwise they would not be able even to survive. The same as with water, the IE, I believe, would be the same necessity people should have in order to continue living. And I'm not saying just for their, I know, like having fun or something, just because all of the jobs uh, would be related to it. And that's an interesting point because I was recently discussing it with my friends that even in... Uh, uh, in in the West, even in uh, here in, in Europe, we can say that uh, people who work, for instance, in Amazon, in plants, uh, uh, those who did something manually, even they, being here in megapolises, they have to adapt to this technology. And otherwise, they would lose their jobs. So the same related to, um, to African countries. So answering your question, I believe that Nothing gonna happen without a desire or a goal. If there is a goal of uh, uh, of sharing it, uh, there would be a spread of it. Otherwise, uh, other like people and uh, citizens of the world should spread it as also as a mission of I know water spreading, for instance. Unfortunately, yeah, hundred percent agree. It's all about incentives. Of, of the people in power and is there an incentive yeah. to actually spread it around the world um, mm-hmm. we can live in this kind of utopia fantasy where we want everyone to live equally but I think mm-hmm. thousands of years of history has shown that it, it will be unequal until we have an upheaval of world order or something crazy happens right and we can hope <laughs> but yeah. to see what happens but Jade I, w- I, w- I want to bring it back to the start again um, talking about ops um, fascinating story and really interesting learning about you um, can you talk about Maybe this is a kind of two-part question. An area that you want to improve on. Um, so, you know, in your operation, kind of all your experiences back when you were at Fuel, now starting your own business. Are there any skills that you notice that are your own blind spots in terms of, okay, I really need to improve this? Um, speak to my friend the other day and he said, he's fantastic coder, really good, um, multiple languages, very advanced, um, but he's not very good with the social skills. And he identified that. He's like, yo, I need to go to more networking events. I need to put myself out there more. I need to speak to more people. Uh, this is a big blind spot of mine. So what would you say in the operations realm is a big blind spot of yours? Uh, and then after that, I do want to ask, like, what skill is a blind spot in your own personal life as well that you try to improve? Okay, good. <laughs> um, such cool questions today, James. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so if we speak about uh, blind spots in operations, I would say that the first thing I'm uh, I'm good in selling uh, right now uh, because I understand pain points and I know how to solve uh, founders' pain points. But the blind spot here is that I need to narrow my services down to some of the things I usually provide founders with. 
And meaning that I cannot be an expert in sales operations. For instance, I cannot advise them on all the outbound tools, or I cannot them advise them on all the recruitment tools, for instance. I can help them understand the process and what is required for this process. So simultaneously, they can have an expert internally who will recommend them what should be installed. And that's what I got right now. I have sold so many things to my clients and right now I am doing so much in order to understand how to provide them with uh, the expected result. Then the next thing is to narrow down a little bit and um, not to not try not to cover all their pain points, but be more expert in some, in, in some things. And that's kind of my weak side because uh, I am kind of trying to solve everything. Simultaneously, it takes a lot of time, a lot of my effort. However, I can be just good, as you mentioned, in like few business models and choose which I love the most and work with them instead of constantly trying to occupy more and more business models. And another thing, um, attention to details. Um, I have written so many instructions, procedures, and I do this good, but when I am tired and I am not motivated uh, right now to write all of them because it's kind of manual work and I already know how to do this, therefore I went to consulting so other people do this. So still, I understand that if I need to write them, sometimes I can uh, I can lose this attention to details and uh that's the most important thing for me to understand how can I delegate writing those pro processes, procedures, and descriptions, and how to teach people how to do this instead of doing it on my own. Not to not to work on my weak sides, but develop my strong sides. Well, that's a really nice point. Leading into your strengths as well. Yeah. Uh, without letting your weak spots become a blind spot. And then yeah. how I mean the same question there, but in your personal life. Because I mean, we all talk about work. You're a startup founder. I know most of your waking hours, if all your waking hours are thinking about your business, um, what's next, what's on the horizon, what you're doing today. It's very hard to think um, about other stuff outside. But if I had to say, you know, what kind of hobby you will scare outside of work that you're already working on that is your kind of passion project at the moment? Um, I have so many passions uh, and props. I'm sure it was you earlier that... Uh, I want to go to Hollywood and be an actor and uh, because of actress and because of this, I started courses here in the UK, but I want to, to restart visiting them because I went there just, just once, but I enjoyed it that much that I want to be back to that. But the weakness here and blind spot here is that I don't do any sport already for two months months and a half besides carver like a type of skate uh that's that's awful because i have a um, my uh, a pain in my back uh in my necks uh, everywhere but i am honest i don't do anything with this i just started searching for stretching and for pilates here that's one thing and another thing before i had had a cool um uh, routine of uh, how to say mm, going 
and sleeping at uh, 11 p.m. But right now, because I work until 10 or until 11, I want to get rest after then and to watch a movie, for instance. Therefore, sometimes I go to bed at 12. And after that, I would be honest. And the next day, I can be the, the angriest person. And I don't want to show it. Therefore, everything is uh, caught inside me. But still, it's not houses. It's two things which um, are uh, which I have right now because of the business. But I hope that as my main goal of starting and launching business was to have freedom. So I hope that in two weeks I scheduled museum on Tuesday and gallery art gallery visit on Friday. I believe so. You can uh, ask me in two weeks if I uh, will keep my promises on doing that. <laughs> Uh, avoiding burnout is the most essential thing. And from the two things you said there, the first one is like, yeah, I have those periods. I, I train all the time, but then I've been ill this week, so I haven't trained in like a week. And even in that time, you can feel your body start to get stiff, a little bit of back pain. You sit in this chair for 12 hours. Um, you, you do like 500 steps a day from, from the bathroom to your shit desk, <laughs> your, to the kitchen, this kind of stuff, right? It's, it's horrible. Um, so yoga is fantastic for me. I try and do like, anywhere between 20 and 40 minutes a day. Just really stretch it out. Static stretching, hold the position, each one for like three minutes. It's a great app, pliability. I'm plugging it for free here, but it's a fantastic app. Um, I'll send it to you after. Okay. I'll like all these different routines. I absolutely love it. Um, and the second one as well is you you want to have like rest after your day, right? And from kind of you said like watching a movie by 11 to 12 p.m. I used to beat myself up over that. I don't think you should because I think it's essential you know, this is your relaxing time. If you don't have this time and you live life, I've been there, you've been there, where you live life like, you know, 9 a.m. to 10, I must do this, I must do this, it blocks the time. This works sometimes, but it doesn't work all the time. It's not sustainable. You have to give yourself, you know, time to enjoy yourself and relax and follow the you, you're excited about. I think a good example of that for me would be if I'm working on like coding or I'm working on a project and I say, okay, I'm going to get an early night tonight and stop at 12 p.m. and go to bed straight away. But I'm getting really into it, you know, and I'm learning and I'm, and I'm, I'm making lots of progress and it ends up being 2 a.m. Um, you know, so well, as long as you don't have like uh, commitments in the morning, you can just sleep in and do it again. And it doesn't really matter because if you're in your flow state and you're making a lot of progress and you're really feeling it in the moment, the time doesn't matter. I think those are the times, the hours of the day where you really have to put your, mm -hmm. put your time in. I speak to a lot of people when you, you watch these like YouTube videos, you just experts as well. They say, like, figure out the flow state for yourself. So figure out if you're a morning person, you work best in the afternoon, you work best in the evening. Um, and build your day as much as you can, obviously, around that. So if you know that you're better in the evenings and you have more energy then, then try and maybe schedule your calls in the late afternoon to try and get your deep work done. It's this kind of thing. Um, instead of having to follow this arbitrary, like, 9 to 5, 9 to 9, whatever. Yeah, you're right. We're not all suited for, right? Yeah, yeah, you're right. It's like a cool uh, instructions and life hacks. Yeah, because usually I have still in my mind because I was working like for six years full time uh, employee. Uh, I usually think that oh nine at least, and then I don't care that I'm not a full time employee anymore. That I can uh, get up just at five or four. So it works for me for me just on one side that I have to start at nine <laughs> at least. <laughs> Oh, I love it. Yeah, I went through a phase where I was like starting at 6.30 as well. I went to the gym before, but I can't do it. I can only do it like one day a week. It's so hard to, to keep up with that. Stuff. 
because I want my person. But Jane, it's, yeah. it's been so fantastic having you on. It's been great to catch up. Obviously, we met about a year ago at SAS Talk at the event. Um, we'd love to meet you again in person soon. But let's wrap up then with, you know, one piece of advice you give to someone who is in your position. So I'm talking about someone who's working at a corporate or a startup. They have the skills, you know, they've been working for, you know, five years. Uh, they're thinking about starting their own agency, their own business, their own service. Um, what piece of advice would you give to them? So it's so like obvious or primitive, but the main thing I want to tell those people that uh, ask yourself questions. Why? Because um, if you ask me a year ago, I wouldn't say that it's high time for me to start a startup. Or because even though I had five years of experience and probably I was probably the same chain as I am right now, like, I mean, in skills. Uh, but uh, only in six years, I when I asked myself, am I ready now? I had a yes question. And that's the highest level of uh, understanding yourself, uh, yourself as an individual, what do we want now? Props, you can work for a startup for 10 years and that can be your answer. And if it's honest, this variant will work out for you. But if you are, the answer is, yes, I want to launch my startup. I would say that be, uh, don't think about any borders, forget about them. There, 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 there is nothing what can, uh, what can limit yourself. And if you want to be a founder of a million start million dollar startup, okay, one trillion, it's okay. But that's just a funny example with money. But I'm saying if you want to go to a world round trip, that's possible. And that's the main insight I got before I launched OpsLab. I, uh, the trigger you asked me before, and that's just now I realized. So the minute I understood that I can do anything, I can do, and now I can go for a world round trip, for instance. The moment I understood that, yeah, I'm ready to start my own startup. Amazing, powerful words. I, nothing more to add there. You, you said it so well. But thanks so much, Jane, for your time. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for such cool questions. It was uh, so many insights personally for me that I have to write down some notes after our meeting to think about some questions. <laughs> <even afterward. laughs> Thank you, James. It was so organic. You always want to leave. You always want to leave with more questions, right? Yeah. That's how you know it's good. Yeah. Thank you so much. It was really my pleasure. Take care, Jane. Thanks so much. Take care of yourself. Yeah. Thank you, James. Bye.